Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny skies, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. There's a lot of information, misinformation, and confusion regarding who's eligible not only to vote, but who could even register if formerly incarcerated. I definitely believe that if you have to pay taxes, you should have a say in what happens in your community. I have to pay property taxes. I have to pay all different types of taxes. And I did this before I was able to share my opinion and who governs us. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first this, state and local officials are responding to the news that President Donald Trump and the First Lady have tested positive for the coronavirus. In a tweet, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms wrote that her thoughts and prayers are with the First Family, saying, quote, A COVID-19 diagnosis is unsettling, and even more so when a loved one also tests positive. Derek and I wish the First Family a speedy recovery, close quote. You may recall the mayor herself had previously recovered from COVID-19. Also, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says he's wishing the president and First Lady a, quote, quick recovery. In related news, Governor Kemp also announced that $113 million in CARES Act funding will go to Georgia nursing homes and long-term care facilities. $78 million will be used for testing nursing home staff. The funding will also be used to provide additional support staffing. This comes as the latest figures from the State Department of Public Health show newly confirmed COVID-19 cases continue a generally steady decline. Active hospitalizations are also on the decline. 319,334 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed here in the state. 28,668 have been hospitalized. And of those, 5,300 were ICU admissions. And to be exact, 7,263 deaths have been recorded since March. All of this is according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, at the University of Georgia this weekend, fans will gather at Sanford Stadium for the university's first home football game. The Dogs will take on Auburn tomorrow. My producer, Grace Walker, will probably be watching that game. Now, the Georgia-Auburn rivalry goes back to 1892, but yes, this game will be like any other in the past. Fans are required to wear a mask, and the stadium will restrict the number of fans in the stadium to about 16,000. Now, get this. Sanford can actually hold about 90,000 when full. And because of a revamped pandemic schedule, the SEC teams will only play each other once this season. And speaking of sports, the Atlanta Braves are moving on to the next round in the playoffs. The Braves took care of the Cincinnati Reds last night with a 5 to nothing win. And also, the Braves finally ended that awful postseason losing streak dating back to 2001. It's not clear as of yet who the Braves will play. It'll be either the Miami Marlins or the Chicago Cubs in the National League Division Series, which we played in Houston. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We're just days away from the deadline to register to vote. It's Monday, October 5th. And there have been a lot of concerns about this next issue. Because depending on the state in which you live, and the laws vary from state to state, there's a lot of information and misinformation and downright confusion about whether or not someone who was formerly incarcerated can register to vote. Well, joining me now to provide a little clarity on this issue and how they're trying to help as it relates to the state of Georgia is Brenda Smeaton. She's the legal director for the Georgia Justice Project and Bridgette Simpson, author, activist. And we're going to hear her story in just a moment. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. 
Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. And Brenda, I want to start with your organization for a moment for our listeners who may not be familiar with the work of the Georgia Justice Project. Uh, Tell them about it. Sure. Georgia Justice Project is a legal nonprofit. We've been around for over 30 years. And we have two goals, reducing the number of people under correctional control in Georgia and reducing barriers to reentry. And we do that through a combination of directly representing people, education and policy reform. And when it comes to this area in terms of how folks who were formerly incarcerated can get their voting rights restored, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of information, a lot of misinformation. In Georgia, what are the laws around if you were formerly incarcerated and your right to? So the Georgia Constitution says that you cannot vote if you are serving a sentence for a felony conviction of moral turpitude. And there's no definition of moral turpitude in Georgia law. So the way that that has been interpreted is to include all felonies. So a lot of people get confused about this and think that if they have ever been convicted of a felony, they can't vote, but that's not the case. You can't vote while you are serving a sentence for Mm -hmm. a felony conviction. But as soon as your felony sentence is done, you can re-register just like anybody would have to re-register if they they moved or um, to another place or something like that. Now, I want to get some clarity on this, too, because we also know that for some individuals, they may be still serving out a sentence, but just not physically incarcerated. Does that play a role at all? It does. As long as you are under correctional control, so you are in prison, on probation, on parole for a felony sentence, unfortunately, you cannot vote, which is problematic in Georgia because we have the highest rate of correctional control and we have really long probation sentences. I want to be clear, if you're on parole, you cannot cannot vote. vote. Bridgette, tell us your backstory here. Um, How long did you serve? I served um, 10 years. I was um, incarcerated in 2008 and was released in um, 2018. So at that point, how soon after did you try to register to vote or did you inquire about your voting rights? Well, almost immediately after. um, But I I did a lot of reading while incarcerating, Mm -hmm. uh, while I was incarcerated and I did a lot of planning. So um, it was it was just something that I um, I wanted like almost immediately. But then I discovered that it does not um, that it does not happen until my sentence is complete. So I had 10 years. Well, my full sentence was 12 years to serve 10 um, in the um, Department of Correction, two years to be served on probation. Once I discovered that I couldn't vote, like I literally harassed my probation officer. You would think it was the other way around that he was the one that was being monitored by me because I'm like, okay, like I've been on probation. I have a job. I fulfilled all of the things that um, was required by the state. Can I get off early? And I got off early. I literally um, was persistent and I had a party where I got registered to vote because um, just in um, connecting with movement, I was able to um, be politicized. And I know that you have to complete your sentence to its end. If you owe one penny, you cannot vote that your sentence is not considered completed. Like if you are, um, if it's your last day on, um, if October 5th is your last day on probation, you cannot register to vote. You have to um, wait till the next cycle. And it's like, um, it's punitive, um, it's punitive measures if you um, register to vote and you're not, and your sentence hasn't been completed. So um, to answer your question, that was a bit verbose, but after, Um, learning um, that my sentence had to be fully complete before I registered. That's when I um, got registered to vote, when my sentence was complete. And so, Brenda, when we hear stories like of Bridget's, we're talking about serving, physically serving the time, but then also being released, but on probation. And sometimes probation can be five or 10 years for folks. Just for some clarity, you can't even register to vote if you are even on probation. Is that correct? I just you want to make sure. You cannot register to, 
Yes, you cannot register to vote while you are on felony probation. There are a couple of exceptions. If you are serving felony probation for a first offender or a condition, conditional discharge sentence, you can register to vote. You don't lose your right to vote. But otherwise, during probation and parole, you cannot vote. I do want to clarify one thing that Bridget said about fines and fees, because I wouldn't want somebody to think that they couldn't vote when they can. The language from the Secretary of State isn't, it's a little bit confusing to know. Um, they just released some language about two weeks ago. And it says that you can vote if your fines were canceled upon completion of your term of incarceration. So the, the important thing to check is, is my sentence complete? And if you're not sure if your sentence is complete, reach out to your probation officer, your probation office, and they can issue you something called a certificate of sentence completion so that you can be absolutely clear about that. Now, Brigitte advocated and lobbied for herself. Well, I mean, in my experience traveling around the state, a lot of people don't know what their rights are, um, but you know, Bridget works for a great group called Women on the Rise that ensures that people who are formerly incarcerated um, do know what their rights are. So there's been a lot of effort over the last couple of years to make sure that people know what their rights are. Bridget, you are an, an activist, an advocate in this space now. When you talk to folks, are folks still kind of surprised that, yes, I can register to vote? Or if there are these barriers, here's what I need to do. Yes, they're very surprised. Um, folks don't believe that they can um, register to vote. Uh, when I speak to people, uh, they don't believe me. That's, that's the truth. And it's because we've been conditioned to believe that we can't vote. Once you've been convicted of a felony, um, once you've done jail or prison time, um, we have been taught that that is one of the, the the privileges of an American that you lose your right for civil engagement. Um, when I first came home, I worked, um, you know, I worked to hand out um, different, uh, just different uh, publications to vote in the, the, the race for governor. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have the ability to vote at all. And um, I met so many people as I knocked on doors that said, oh no, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm a kid, you know, I was convicted of a felony. I can't vote. And then I'm like, you can once your sentence is complete. And then they'll ask me, well, how do you know? And then I'll say, you know, I'm formally incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And they ask me, can I vote? And I'm like, my sentence is not complete. Um, I have literally a friend who has 40 years of probation. She's 50 years old, 40 years of probation. And you know, it's, it's so many people that that they just they just don't know. They don't know and they don't believe because um, we've been socialized to believe that once you know you've erred, that you 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 can't participate. Um, you can't participate anymore in community, and in, in in the 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 civil portions of community. Uh, Brenda, let me come back to you because you heard Bridgette talk about her friend who has a. 40-year probation. Who can make the decision or approve someone being allowed to, to register to vote? We have very long probation sentences in Georgia, on average about three, three and a half times what other states are. So while we have a fairly good, you know, decent law compared to some other states on voting that you can vote when you're off paper, we keep people on paper a really, really long time. So this means that we have about 230,000 people right now that are disenfranchised. And you know, dealing with probation sentences in Georgia is, is a whole nother topic, but we do, we keep people um, outside of the system and we keep them from having a voice for a really long time. So here in Georgia, you're saying, we're just talking about Georgia now, there are nearly 230,000 people with felony convictions who are currently ineligible to vote, which could be due to still on probation or having to still pay restitution and, and fees or fines, what have you. Is that what you're saying? Yes, if they are on, if they're currently on felony probation or parole, they can't, but 
it doesn't, it's not always the case that if you still have restitution or some fines, you can't vote. What really matters is, is my sentence complete? And sometimes sentences are completed before all those things are paid. But in Bridget's circumstances, she lobbied, she advocated with her parole officer. Is that where an individual needs to begin? Because it sounds like there is a, a road, a process that one can seek. So is it starting with the parole officer or the probation board or what have you that makes that decision? Well, I, I do want to be clear that as soon as you are off paper, so you're not on probation or parole, you can register to vote. You have that right. You don't have to take any additional steps. You don't have to apply for a pardon. You don't have to get a certificate. It might be helpful, but you don't have to get one. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are extra steps you can take. Bridget took the step to get off of probation earlier, which is a, a separate matter. But when your sentence is complete, you can vote. So are you telling me there's no there's no action for someone who is on probation that they can take? There's no steps, there's no measures in place for them? Is that what you're saying, Brenda? You could potentially ask that your probation be terminated early if that's something that you're eligible for. But that's, you know, of course, a process of going through your probation officer and getting a, a judge to sign off on it. But otherwise, you have to wait until your sentence is complete. So you're saying you have to be eligible to have your to come off probation. Is is that what you're saying? It's very confusing. And I see why it's, it's confusing to a lot of folks. So are you saying you first have to even be eligible to ask to be taken off uh, probation so you can register to vote? I mean, it also depends what your sentence is. Like, say I had a, a drug conviction and I had two years of felony probation at the end of that two years i'm done with probation i have completed my sentence i can re-register to vote Uh, in bridget's circumstance she asked um, and advocated for herself so that she could terminate her sentence early which is a possibility sometimes Hmm. looking at george's statutes around this uh brenda what would you all like to see change or the language modified so that it's clear or that it does provide an avenue for folks to register to vote? Well, I think we need to do a lot of public education so that people do realize that when they are off paper, they can vote. I think that's number one before we even improve and expand who can vote. Let's make sure everybody who's already eligible knows that they can do that. There There have been some efforts last year, there was a Senate study committee to look at expanding the the right to vote for folks because the constitution does limit it, Um, says that it has to be a conviction of moral turpitude and we don't define that. There was an effort to to define that. Um, Unfortunately, that didn't go anywhere. So we are stuck where we were before in terms of who, who we're excluding from the civil process. But at the very least, let's make sure that everybody who is eligible understands that and can easily, if they need that paperwork from probation, that they can get that easily to be able to prove that they're eligible to participate. Well, Brenda, let me just before we we wrap up here, when we talk about moral turpitude, someone listening is saying, well, can that be subjective, depending on whom you ask in terms of how it's defined? Yeah, I mean, the way the Georgia has chosen to define it is that every felony is a crime of moral turpitude. Other states define that specifically and say these offenses are crimes of moral turpitude. Um, I think it would be good if we, you know, I think Bridget can probably speak to this better than I can, but ask what we're, what we are accomplishing by keeping people excluded from our system you know, there there are only a couple of states that allow people to vote while they're in prison. So I know that's that's a big hur- hurdle for Georgia to get there. But once somebody is out, we want people to reintegrate back into society. Mm-hmm. We want them to have a voice. So why why are we continuing to exclude them for so long? Brigitte, I'll give you the last word on this. Um, what are you hoping will change here in Georgia in terms of the law? and folks being able to register to vote um, once they are released um, from the correctional system? 
I definitely believe that if you have to pay taxes, you should have a say in what happens in your community. Like uh, I have to pay taxes. I'm a homeowner. I have to pay property taxes. I have to pay all different types of taxes. And I did this before I was able to um, share my opinion and who um, governs us. And uh, I just think that Georgia's laws are very archaic just to be um, transparent. And uh, we can't vote, but we were being counted while we were in prison um, as a part of, um, you know, the, the people who run the certain areas as a part of their constituents. So it's like, that's not fair. You're counting us, but we don't get to participate in choosing you, mm -hmm. but you count us when you get monies and when, you know, you count us for the reasons that are convenient. So let our voices count because we are, we're people. Mm. We should not be disenfranchised from any of our rights. Um, it's hard enough just being a person that is formerly incarcerated with the rest of the implications. However, if we can have a say in who governs us, we can have a say in what legislation could look like for people that are like us. So um, if you are hearing my voice right now and you are formerly incarcerated and you have a question on how you can register to vote because you have to register to vote. That is something that is important. You, um, after your voting rights are um, you know, disenfranchised, you have to register they don't just come back to you. You have to go and get them. So just please register, reach out to Georgia Justice Project, Women on the Rise. Someone will help you and we will help you get registered to vote. It is not lost. Your voice counts. And one final note, the last day to register to vote in the state of Georgia is this coming Monday, October 5th. And you must have that voter form postmarked by Monday. Bridget Simpson, author, activist, organizer now, who works on behalf in helping those formerly incarcerated register to vote, get their voting rights restored. I was also joined by Brenda Smeaton, the legal director for the Georgia Justice Project. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. It's big business, and Atlanta is considered a hot spot for fintech. What is fintech? Financial technology, that is. Here you go. Did you use your debit or credit card today? Did you send someone you love, like a niece or nephew who keeps asking you for money, um, using PayPal or Cash App or Venmo? That sounded very personal, didn't it? Did you donate money through crowdsourcing? Well, basically, the fintech industry involves the intersection of technology and financial services. And according to the Metro Atlanta Chamber, more than 160 fintech organizations, businesses, entities are here in Georgia and many in Atlanta. Some names you may know, NCR, WorldPay, Equifax, Global Payments, Paymetrics, just to name a few. They also say that Atlanta is on par with London, New York, Zurich, and Singapore. Metro Atlanta is becoming a global center for money, markets, and transactions. But although fintech is a booming business, there's a great concern because, well, the industry lacks diversity. And joining me now to talk more about this is Xavier Peoples, founder of HBCU Change, and Anik Khan, co-founder and CEO of Max Rewards. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having us here. Glad to be here. Let's begin here because I gave a very short description of fintech. What do y'all want to add on to that statement about what fintech is? Anik, I'll start with you. Well, there's a lot of companies that also support uh, the ones that you might think of. So in addition to the credit card processors, you have companies 
that have algorithms that detect if a transaction is fraud or not. And so there's a lot of other systems uh, and technologies that kind of play into the things that you normally think about that kind of go behind the scenes. Uh, so there's a, it's a pretty big industry that has a lot of kind of support players that are also part of the industry. All right. Xavier, what about you? What do you want to add on about what fintech is? So to me, I think in addition to what the two of you all said, fintech just makes e-commerce and, and financial transactions easier mm-hmm. at the end of the day. So that's it. And, and for our listeners who, and, and Anique, you talked about this, you said there are so many aspects to this. There are a lot of careers in fintech. What's in demand? What are you hearing what's in demand most, Anique? Well, one of the, the big ones is cybersecurity um, that is getting bigger and bigger with kind of more threats emerging um, and everything becoming more digital. And so there's, uh, you know, I think the last time I was in a conference where they were talking about cybersecurity, they mentioned that you know, there wasn't anyone unemployed in, in this field just because of how in demand it is. But there's so many different types of companies and there's so many different types of work that is in demand that you know, from product, engineering, risk, uh, obviously the administrative parts, people, finance, that it's, it's a pretty you know, bustling industry and there's a lot of opportunity. Xavier, anything you want to add about what careers are in demand for FinTech? I think adding on that risk piece, every single day, I think we read about companies being compromised and, and data being compromised. And that has created an entire industry um, from the insurance perspective of making sure that you're covering the potential risk of data being compromised. Now, there was a piece in Fast Company earlier this year which talked about diversity in fintech. And this was the first sentence of the story. Quote, fintech companies are beset by racial inequality on all sides. They serve predominantly white customers, are understaffed by people of color, and are led by mostly white male faces. Close quote. Xavier, truth in that statement? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, for for various uh, socioeconomic reasons, um, diverse people, women are kind of, I'm gonna say late to the FinTech party, if you will. But I I will say living here in Atlanta, um, that is absolutely changing. And so as time goes on, I think the the FinTech space will become more diverse and FinTech and technology itself has um, the ability to ultimately benefit from the diversity within the space. And we're going to expand that in just a moment, but I want to give Anique a chance to comment. That statement that I read from the article in Fast Company, truth in that statement? Absolutely. Um, when you think about B2B fintech companies, they're serving generally uh, banks and other financial institutions that are also predominantly white and male. Um, and so you kind of have to have those connections uh, to really build in that relationship. And then the consumer side of it, you, you need consumers who already have a base of financial products. And we know that uh, minorities typically are underrepresented in a lot of different product categories and may not be as familiar with it. You know, personally, growing up, um, I didn't really uh, know much about credit cards, that strong misunderstandings about credit cards. And that's the type of company I'm kind of working on right now. Um, so I can absolutely understand it from my own, own personal experience of how this affects uh, you know, the, the broader industry. Well, I want to go back to something that Xavier said, because he talked about in a sense that, uh, as he put it, minorities and women were late to the party on this. Well, as you all got involved in this space, I imagine you didn't see a lot of people of color or women. Is that what you're saying, uh, Xavier? Absolutely. Um, I think I know of one other woman fintech founder personally, mm-hmm. um, Whereas I know a lot of white males, um, a few African-American males, but when you look at the, the broad spectrum of individuals and, and companies in this space, majority of these companies are um, led by, by white men. I do want to touch on uh, a point earlier in terms of minorities are probably the most underbanked Mm-hmm. subsect of people in this country, right? And so in terms of the utilization of fintech for the consumer, you can't even 
have any type of transactions if you don't have a, a checking account, if you don't have a debit card or a credit card. And so with that, there are people to this day, believe it or not, who still, when they make a dollar, they, they go to the um, cash, cash check in place on the, at the end of their corner, and then they're putting their mon money under their mattress, right? And so what we have to do is in, in minority communities, we have to get them to be banked because if you're banked, you can be pushed into what we call the present and, and, and benefit from FinTech as it stands today. And Xavier, we've had so many conversations on this program about the unbanked and underbanked, and you are exactly right on that. And Anique, I want to ask you in terms of what Xavier just said about the consumers, but also Anique, did you have mentors? Did either of you have mentors that could help you as you entered this space? So I've had a few. Um, I think, you know, one thing uh, that's that's kind of great about Atlanta uh, and, and maybe the broader industry as well, but I'm more exposed to the, yeah, the fintech leaders in Atlanta is that they are very, very uh, willing to help people. You reach out to them and they will they will help you. Uh, and we've had a lot of people help us along the way, uh, people that kind of look like me and people who didn't look like me. So I would say for anyone who's interested in this industry, reach out to people because they are willing to help. But something else too that you talked about, Anique, I'm gonna stay with you for a moment. People hear the word fintech, it sounds great, and I want to work in the space of finance and, and technology, but there has to be, the, the framework has to be laid. So when we talk about trying to increase the candidate pipeline, does it begin in, in middle school, high school? Where does, it, where does it begin? How do we begin to solve this problem in fintech if there's concerns about a lack of diversity? Absolutely. I think the, the younger you can you can kind of expose people to these opportunities, the better it is. Uh, just as an example, uh, we had an intern that was a black female recently graduated from Dartmouth. She was interested in us because of all the things I was telling that was opposite of what she knew about credit cards. Uh, so she came from a family where she wasn't exposed to this. She saw credit cards as something bad and something you shouldn't use, not something uh, a tool that could help you earn rewards and help you improve your finances. Um, that was something that she's learning post-college. And I think if people were exposed to these kinds of uh, you know, products much, much earlier on, they'd, they'd want to be interested in it. They'd want to kind of work in it. And, and I think uh, that's, that's really the only way you're going to get people uh, to kind of go after these types of jobs. So this young woman that you all, that was an intern, are you all doing anything to help her further her career then, Anique? Absolutely. So when she came in, she had no background in, in fintech. Uh, what she said was she was willing to learn, and that's what we gave her the opportunity. Um, she kind of came in, um, you know, said, here's the things I want to learn, and I tried to find things that she could do to help build that. So she is now, um, you know, she works at other companies now, mm -hmm. uh, and I think she recently started her own company, um, but I think it kind of gave her some of the experiences that she needs to have to get to the next level and where she wanted to be in her career. If you're just joining the conversation, I'm Rose Scott, and this is Closer Look. We're talking about the fintech industry and its and its diversity and inclusion problem. I'm joined by Xavier Peoples, founder of HBCU Change, and Anik Khan, co-founder and CEO of Max Rewards. Xavier, when we talk about creating that pipeline and, and diversifying the candidate pool in fintech, uh, what do you see are the solutions? How do we do that? Well, what I would say is, I'm a little different in this fintech space in that uh, the, the company that I created mm -hmm. was created because I saw a problem and I created a solution that just so happened to be fintech, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so what, what I would say is, I think the foundation of every industry is business. And so I'm, I'm a business major and I, I don't care if you're a, a lawyer, a doctor, if you're in technology, I think everyone should have a, a fundamental business course first, because at the end of the day, if you're going to have a successful fintech company and be successful in the fintech space, you need to have the fundamentals of business first, and then you can grow a, a successful um, financial tech company. Well, let's let's go there then, because with HBCU Change, which you said you just happened to start a business, have a startup that is in the fintech space, but which with HBCU Change, with this, which is new, and I'm gonna let you uh, talk tell our listeners about it. But this is something new. It was a concept that, from what I understand, 
had not been out there. So now you're in the space, <laughs> Xavier. Uh, but tell our listeners about HBCU Change. So what, I, what I'll say is, and I'm going to give you a clip, clip notes version since we, we, we're short on time. So my daytime job, I work for a firm by the name of Capital Group. Mm-hmm. And we are the largest active money manager in the world. And because of that, we manage money for a lot of endowments and foundations of some of the, the most notable institutions of higher learning in the country. And so I, I went to the research department. I said, hey, how many HBCUs do we manage? And they said zero. So I flew all over the country to talk to HBCUs about their endowments. And, and they said, Xavier, listen, um, the research and the resources that your company have, that's cool but we need to solve for um, getting our alumni to consistently give back to the institution. And so coming back home, I sent out a survey to 5,000 HBCU alum and I said, hey, why don't you give back to your institution? Why don't you give back to your institution on a consistent basis? The number one answer was that they don't give back because they've never been asked, followed closely by, they didn't feel that they can give an amount that would have an impact. And that's when a light bulb went off. So being in the FinTech space, there's a, a company by the name of Acorn. Mm-hmm. And uh, Acorn, basically it takes the change from your daily transactions and it invests that change into the market. So mm-hmm. you buy a cup of coffee for $3.75, mm-hmm. it takes that 25 cents, invest it in the market. And I said, what if I create Acorn for HBCUs where we take that same change and we give that change to the HBCU of your choice. And that allows people to give without thinking about it. And it has a tremendous impact on HBCUs. And so did you develop the app? You developed that yourself? Well, I, I paid somebody to develop it for me. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, the, but the actual concept, the actual idea, um, I came up with everything from, from top to bottom. How's it going so far? Because you have a goal of a billion so dollars, right? A billion dollars in five years. And the feedback has been absolutely amazing. Um, we launched on August 1st. We we're a week and a half into our marketing campaign, and in a week and a half, we have over three thousand downloads, and so we are trending to have thirty thousand downloads. Uh, we'll say by the middle of uh, November, and so I think that is huge. We're growing fast, and we are literally just getting off the ground. So it, it, it's amazing. The ride has been great so far. And Anique, tell us about Max Rewards. So Max Rewards helps people manage their credit cards and maximize their rewards. Uh, it's something that I used to do kind of manually. And I realized that one, there was a lot of other people like me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more importantly, there were a lot of other people like my parents who have great credit, but really didn't know how to use any of these things. Um, Max Rewards makes it so that you can put in your cards and we kind of tell you the best card to use in any given situation. We auto activate any of your offers and bonus categories so you don't have to do anything. There's a massive disparity between, you know, people who are already in the know and can spend the time uh, and learn how to use these and, and really consistently put a lot of time in trying to maximize, uh, you know, benefits from their financial products mm-hmm. and then people who are just not aware of it. And what we want to do is just eliminate that and make this accessible to everyone. And how's it going so far? It's been phenomenal. We we launched uh, a little more than a year ago. Uh, we got into the TechStars program, which was a great accelerator for us. Uh, we have over 15,000 registered users now who've saved over $25 million in the past year. Wow. As we wrap up, gentlemen, where do you see this fintech industry going next? And is there an area other than we talked about the lack of diversity and concerns about that? Is there something else that you all see that needs to be addressed, period, whatever that might be, uh, Anique? Yeah, so I think one, you'll see finance um, finance companies becoming more tech enabled and you'll see more companies becoming finance companies. So this is you know, T-Mobile opening a bank, um, Uber opening a bank. Um, so I think you're gonna see a lot of, this industry is just gonna get bigger and bigger. Uh, the second thing is I think we're gonna have better and more digital experiences. This has already been happening, but with COVID, Everything is moving digital, um, and I think there's a, a, a much bigger importance for having a superior digital experience. And third is you're going to see a lot more automated decision making on the business to business side. It'll be around risk, cybersecurity, um, and then on the consumer side, it's really going to be helping people make better decisions. 
something like HPC or change, you know, you don't have to think about it. It's automatically doing it with max rewards. You don't have to think about it. It's telling you what to do. And I think you'll see a lot more products like that come out. All right. Xavier, what about you? Where are we going in this space? I think that we're going to see fintech solving a lot of major world problems. Um, and one thing that I think the first thing that comes to mind is income inequality. And so when you when you see apps like Robinhood, like Acorn, that gives people who um, have lower incomes the opportunity to invest in markets and, and grow their wealth and their income by investing change and small amounts of money into the market, I think that we're going to start to see income and inequality shrink in this country because of great apps that are innovative, that are giving people who don't have um, high, high amounts of wealth to, to invest in markets and to grow their personal portfolios. All right. Well, I am looking forward to seeing what's on the horizon for HBCU Change and also with Max Rewards. Best of luck to both of you and your companies. Xavier Peoples, founder of HBCU Change, and Anik Khan, co-founder and CEO of Max Rewards. Thank you both for taking the time and, and talking about this, this booming industry. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. 1,114 miles. That's how far 25-year-old John Shackelford plans to travel by bike over the next two weeks, or maybe over the span of two weeks. The path is also known as the Underground Railroad. And as he explains, the trip is more than just a bike ride. I want to bike the Underground Railroad. No one on the Underground Railroad did it by themselves. But now is not the time to go solo, because if you work better as a team, anything can happen to me, man. I can get killed, it can happen. I don't want people to think that it can't. And to be on a mode of transportation that I am, on the side of the highway, in God knows where, that's not safe in general. And to be black while doing it. I just want to inspire the youth, kids who live in inner city areas, who've never been on a bike, who've never left their communities. I want them to experience the freedom of cycling. So let's go. Let's bike the Underground Railroad. So let's go. And joining me now to talk more about this is John Shackelford. He's taken a break along the journey. John, welcome to the program. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. So I know at the time of this conversation, you said you're going to get on the road soon as this conversation is over. How many miles are you looking to log? Today, we're looking to log about 80 miles today from Atlanta, Georgia to Athens, Georgia. So it's going to be like a seven and a half, seven and a half hour ride, give or take. All right. Well, let's back up and get the origin story for our listeners. How did all this come about? What is the reason behind you on this journey? I'm a huge adventure cyclist. I like to just go out and pick a destination, bike there and fly back kind of thing. And it started as just doing that. And then it also, when I wanted to do this journey, I was looking to seek inspiration from uh, the internet, like YouTube or any type of blogging videos of people doing the exact same thing. And when I went to do that research, I just couldn't relate to anyone in the industry because they were either white or European or they weren't really you know, down to earth or, you know, same background as me. So felt that there was a, a lack in black culture in cycling and also like, you know, black presence. So I thought that, you know, if I can turn this ride into something that's going to inspire people for generations, let's do it. You know, so it, it turned into me like, you know, trying to teach people that bikes can bring you freedom. It can bring you peace of mind. It can bring you health, it can bring you a lot of joy. And, uh, and it also teach people along the way, teach people black history. You know, like we, mm-hmm. we started in Mobile, Alabama, and we next we bike to Selma, you know, so we're going to a lot of really historical places that I feel like need to be showcased um, to the world or to our the cycling community. So I've kind of linked each location to, uh, you know, times in history and mm-hmm. uh, hope that like towards the end, we can have a huge critical mass of you know, people joining us in Washington, D.C. on October 12th. 
And also, John, let's talk about the fact that you chose this path as near as possible to the Underground Railroad. As you're traveling, John, is there something innate that happens that you're feeling because you are traveling this path? It could be spiritual, it could be emotional. Yeah, I definitely have an emotional attachment with just being on the road. Just that sense of, you know, you know, using my own body and my own mind to get me to certain, you know, destinations mm-hmm. is super spiritual. You know, it's very you're very one with yourself, you know, because you're always at this, you're always fighting with yourself, either it's mentally or physically, whether it's bad weather or there's a like two mile hill we got to climb, you know, so it's always a challenge either physically or mentally. And I love challenging myself. And uh, I think that this entire ride is just a huge challenge for us as a crew and then also challenging, you know, people who are going to watch the film, you know, challenge them to actually be uncomfortable and learn these things that they're missing in their history. You mentioned the film because you're, you all are actually documenting this journey for you, right? Correct. Yeah. We have a really weird, but we have an entire production team uh, kind of following us. So the first time for that, and it's, uh, it's been a learning uh, curve, but Mm -hmm. I definitely think it's a positive out, you know, it's going to be a, it's making a huge impact in the long run. So, you know, how like, it used to be on camera a lot more now. So you started in Mobile, and now you're in Atlanta. But how are you doing physically? Are you Have you timed this out in terms of you know how many miles you can log in a day? You take a break. You know, the weather doesn't always cooperate with you. Sometimes you, are you using more than one bike. You know, what are the, the logistics behind this, and how are you taking care of yourself? So there's, there's about, we have 19 days that we're riding. Uh, we're on day eight and we, we only have one bike. You know, we have one bike for each person, a bunch of tubes, a bunch of tires, and we log, we, we've already kind of created this route ahead of time. So we know how many miles we're going to do uh, a day, but things change, you know, mm-hmm. like we had a, this incident uh, where a rider was extremely dehydrated and we had to stop. We couldn't ride the next day. So we had to play catch up, you know, so mm-hmm. things like this will occur along the ride, you know, so it's, it's just a matter of us to adjust to these things and, you know, keep pushing through so we can, you know, make it to our destination on time. And how many riders are along on this journey with you? So it's four of the riders. Uh, four of the riders I've raced cyclocross with. It's, a, it's another cycling discipline in the, uh, in the world. We've all lined up together or done some type of adventure riding together. It's kind of how I've chosen them. Mm-hmm. And they're all African-Americans or except Eduardo, Eduardo's from El Salvador. John, let me ask you this. What about the terrain? It's not all paved, which would be nice maybe, but are you also on some trails and are you switching out different tires for that? Well, the, the, no, well, the first day there was a few trails. We, the quickest way, honestly, is going on the highway or, you know, back road kind of vibes. Um, those are the, that's the fastest way to get to point, you know, point A to point B. Like if we're looking for certain aspects for a shot then that's different we might have to branch out and go a little a little further a little out of the way to get that shot but apparently there might be some trails when we get towards uh north carolina and virginia mm-hmm. there might be some we can hit but as of now we've only hit a few rail trails in selma uh, leaving mobile going towards selma and uh haven't changed the tire haven't change pretty much anything on my bike like if we hit dirt we ride dirt just like that as we wrap up john you said you've met some people along the way what what are some of the questions you get i get a lot of questions of why Mm -hmm. you know why are you doing this why is it important to you you know and i'm and my always my answer is just inspiring the youth and you know explaining people the sense of freedom that a bike can bring you you know the, the joy and the freedom you know and with your friends you know even more so that's like the biggest question mm-hmm. I've had to answer a lot, a lot of the time, you know, and I, and I have no problem telling people, you know, why we're doing this. Because I think it's every time I tell them, they're just, they're wanting to get on a bike. You know, that's kind of what my goal is to get more people into biking. Get more people on a bike. And I definitely understand that. And what have you learned about yourself or what's been eye opening for you on this journey? Um, I had this stereotype that going through the South, you weren't they weren't going to be as friendly as I, you know, as I imagined, but man, since day one, we haven't, we've had like one or two issues, but for the most part, people in Alabama and Georgia are very friendly. They'll give you the entire lane. They won't, they'll, they'll honk and say it wave. And, 
mm-hmm. give you a fix they see you, you know, because it's really unusual to see this many black people on a bike, you know, like on the side of 29, on the side of whatever, you know, so it's really unusual when I see the smiles that it brings. And I love that. That's like a big addiction for me. Yeah, I wish you could stay around Atlanta for a little bit longer because Atlanta has some pretty unique groups here. I think it's Bike Black and Green. So a lot of groups that are working hard to bring awareness to, you know, black folks in the cycling world. So um, when you come back, I want to hook you up with those folks. And finally, for our listeners, when do you project your reach a destination? And then what's next? We're going to go into Athens, Georgia today, but we finish our entire journey on October 12th in Washington, D.C. with a huge critical mass. If you eager or anyone wants to figure out a lot, a little bit more information about the ride or the ending point, they can visit either our website or our IG account at uh, undergroundrailroadride.com or IG Underground Railroad Ride. And so folks can also travel along with you through social media as well. That's what's up. Correct. John Shackelford, a New York-based cyclist who is currently in the midst of a more than 1,100-mile journey by bike from Alabama to Washington, D.C., it's a route known as the Underground Railroad Path. He's following some of that. John, best of luck to you. Continued safe travels for you and the group. Thank you for taking the time to uh, speak with Closer Look and our listeners. All right, no problem. I, thanks for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.